Hey, it's Heike, and this month is National Family Caregiver Month. With 10,000 people turning 65 every day in the United States, it is highly likely that if you aren't already, at some point you will become a caregiver to your aging parent or parents. Traditionally, most of the care falls on us, the daughter. So how can we, the daughters, best prepare for the elder care of our parents and minimize the impact on our health and career? You will learn how you can navigate your caregiving experiences and prepare for when you are inevitably called onto for the care of your parent or parents. I want to welcome all the new listeners and existing fans of the show. Thank you for being here today. This will be a power-packed and very informational episode for you, and I can't wait to get into it. And I want to encourage you to subscribe wherever you consume this content. Have you heard of the Fasted and Fit Over 50 Jumpstart? There are seven essential lessons in this non-intimidating course teaching you simple intermittent fasting strategies combined with the power of Pilates exercises, ideal for someone starting out with intermittent fasting and Pilates exercises that can be done anywhere. The program is designed for empty nester moms over 50 who reclaim their health, want to feel stronger and leaner. Why not jumpstart your health today? I'll put a link in the show notes. Let's dive into this week's feature content. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower empty nester moms over 50 to take back their health and strength to feel vibrant in their second half of life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of empty nester moms around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and reliable so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring guests who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best in life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and I'm so excited to introduce our speaker today, and her name is Liz O'Donnell. She's the founder of Working Daughter, a community for women balancing elder care, career, and more. An award-winning writer, her book, Working Daughter, a guide to caring for your aging parents while earning a living was named one of the best books of the year by Library Journal. In 2020, she launched the first National Working Daughters Day. Liz is the host of Working Daughter podcast as well. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much. Awesome. Liz, let's dive right in as I always like to do. What are you most passionate about? Oh, I'm passionate about two things. One is that nobody goes through caregiving, um, specifically elder care, feeling alone and unprepared. And the other is making care and career compatible because they should be, but um, it's it's not right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking, actually, I just had lunch with my husband and we were talking about our upcoming interview today. And I was saying that I live here in the United States and my parents are in Germany and his parents are already dead and how how our caregiving is looking for us right now. So it's a perfect uh, segue into our interview today because we all end up taking care of our parents one way or another. And there is from all the literature and part of your book I read a better way to do things than we sometimes think Uh, it should be or could be done. Tell us about your 
background with this? What happened to you, your parents, and how did you end up the with a working daughter day? My first, well, I had many working daughter days, but the first one that I labeled a working daughter day was uh, a day I took as a vacation day from work. My parents were in their 80s and they lived about an hour away and they had just started to need more and more care. So I was you know, doing the, they'd stopped driving. So I was doing their grocery shopping and taking them to the doctors and helping them sort through their bills and their mail and sorting their pills every couple of weeks and mowing the lawn, that sort of thing. So this one particular day, my mother had a doctor's appointment. So I took a vacation day so that I could be available to her. And the day started about 5 a.m. I woke up and I sent some work emails and then I saw the kids off to school and then drove the hour to my mother's and she was running late. So we pushed the appointment back and then there were prescriptions to be refilled and we went out to lunch and then my dad needed some help with his computer. And I had just published my first book, which was which is called Mogul Mom and Maid. And it's about the impact of housework um, and childcare on a woman's career. So I had a speaking engagement that night. So the day ended around 11 p.m. and I was exhausted. And yet it was a day off technically, right, from the day job. And as I was driving home that night, I remember thinking to myself, everybody is helping working mothers, but who's going to help us? Who's going to help the working daughters? And that was sort of the light bulb moment that I realized that there were, you know, that I wasn't alone, that there were plenty of us out there and that nobody was talking about it. Very true, because we all wait, or maybe we all try to ignore mm -hmm. that our parents are getting older and just this year, I saw my parents for the first time in four years again. And I was like, man, they really getting old. Mm -hmm. They're in their 80s. And in my mind, they're always the young and capable parents. And especially, right. I think, when you don't see them as frequently, you don't realize how they're aging and what potential difficulties they're dealing with as they're aging. Now, you, you dove into that. that what happened next? Well, what happened next was, so I knew that day that um, my mom, my parents needed more care, but I, I didn't know exactly what they needed, and I didn't know how I would even fit it into my already busy life, um, and I think that's the case for so many of us. We, know, we see that our parents are getting older like you, and we assume they probably need more support, but what exactly do they need? I mean, it's not anything we've ever thought about or, you know, talked about, so, and and there are pl plenty of resources out there, but they're overwhelming. So I didn't do anything for a while except for worry about it. And then fast forward a few months and um, both of my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses on the exact same day. My dad um, had been acting confused and forgetful and was um, I took him to the emergency room, which I would never recommend as a course of action for anybody, but rookie mistake. From there, he was um, given a very powerful antipsychotic drug by the ER staff, which rendered him unable to walk or talk. So he was then admitted to a geriatric psych facility. So that was just a nightmare. Um, so on this one day, it was July 1st, 2014, I met with his medical team at this hospital and they told me he had Alzheimer's dementia and he could never go home to find him a memory care facility. And in the meantime, I had placed my mother in a 30-day respite stay at a local assisted living so that I could be with my kids, my job, and you know, bedside at my father's hospital stay and she wouldn't be alone. And she experienced some stomach pain. So that facility had sent her to another hospital. And so before I even left the parking lot, after the meeting with my father's team, I got a call from my mother's doctor. And he told me my mother had ovarian cancer. And that was what was causing the stomach pain and probably a few months to live. So that's when I really, really got into caregiving. I mean, that hits home when you get such a devastating news, like, it's, and in, especially for you, same day from both parents, that yeah. Yeah. is is a lot to take in and a lot to deal with. Now, in this process, do you have any brothers and sisters, Liz? Yes, I have two older sisters. Uh, one was local, one was out of state. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, so eventually we divided up tasks and care. But a lot of learning there. And I hear from a lot of people, you know, challenges of caring with siblings because you all have different personality types. You all have different relationships with your parents. I mean, you you hinted at this when you were talking. It is difficult for us to see 
our parents aging and, and sort of process what they need because it's not a natural state, right? It's not natural for us. Well, we don't think it's natural. It's actually quite natural, but we don't we don't grow up thinking about it. So it doesn't feel natural for us to take on the care of the people who cared for us. Um, so you've got identity crises happening. You know, so all of your siblings are going to go through the process differently and react differently. My um, way of reacting is I'm really good at logistics, um, and I can be a real steamroller. So you know, find a place for them to live, find an elder law attorney, sort through the bills and the wills, plan a funeral, sort through the medications. I'm great at that stuff, and get out of my way. And if you can't keep up, you get rolled over. Um, I realized, you know, through the whole process of going through caregiving and then writing about caregiving, that um, for months I was frustrated with my sisters for not helping enough, realized, you know, through the process of writing and reflecting that I wasn't really creating space for them to be caregivers to their parents. Um, so eventually we got to a place where I had to accept that, you know, my um, pace is different than other people's paces. The way I was viewing things is, you know, different than everybody else's. I still think I was right, but you know. Uh, and so, um, one of my sisters started to take on longer-term tasks because she moves at a different pace. And the one who was out of state, we tasked her with being the person who called my parents every night and chatted with them and reported back anything because I I didn't want to be the person, you know, I, I didn't want to be doing all of the logistical tasks and then sitting down at the end of the day and being the the person who was receiving all the, you know, the emotional as well. So we, we eventually got to a, a partnership. You know, I love that in your book, when you describe that situation where you steamrolled over everybody and then they're like, hold on, girl, we know you're always the one in charge. Well, how about we'll do this? A, at least that's how I interpret it. We do this yeah. a little bit differently. You can let your emotions shine and don't have to be the boss and the strong one and the, like, I got this for everybody. I really that really resonated with me in your book. So could just say thank you for sharing that story because uh, yeah. I think a lot of us can relate to that because oh absolutely do whether it's by yourself or with siblings and we can talk about the different scenarios is why does this caregiving always fall on us women? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it definitely the majority of it falls to women. 60% of family caregivers are women, but that's 4% men, I think, is still a significant number. Um, but I, I think it falls to women purely from an expectation societal, you know, standpoint. Um, I remember going to a conference once at a really uh, well-regarded senior living facility. You know, they're one of the models that people look at. And there were insurance CEOs, doctors, um, senior living executives, nurses all on the panel. And the word daughter came up eight times in an hour and the word son was never uttered once. So that's just an expectation, right? That women are the caregivers and the nurturers and the ones that take on these invisible unpaid tasks. So I think part of it is society. And um, part of it is the way women, you know, also society, but the way we've been raised, right? So many of us, we were raised to be good girls. And we don't shake that, um, you know, we then go on to be good students and good wives and good employees. And we're the ones who plan the birthday parties and the baby showers in the office, right? Who clean up the conference room if it's left a mess. And so we're just, and then, so that's a natural evolution into good and dutiful daughter. Yeah. You know, and I, um, when I, invited you on the show and I prepared for the show. One of my current clients who is 86, 87, she said to me during one of our training sessions, she says, Heike, I am so glad I got four daughters. They do everything for me. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? She says, well, yeah, that's what they're there for. And that to me is never sits right that, that somebody can have that expectations that we continue, like you said, that role model that we've been uh, imprinted in being and um, now continuing. I mean, it's not that we're not wanting to care, but why is it always us? Well, I said to her too, I said, don't you have any sons? And she says, yeah, but, but, you know, women are just better at that. Well, like, if you look at the, you know, sort of the history of women in the workplace, we're early days with working daughters. 
you know, I mean, we're relatively early days with working mothers, although, you know, they've been in, in the workforce for decades. And if you remember sort of the women who came before us in the 70s in their power suits, you know, the real feminist trailblazers who, you know, you remember the, the old commercial, I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan. So that's just a couple of decades ago and, you know, a generation or two ahead of us. And then my generation, I think we came into the workforce as working mothers and we were, you know, some of the early generations to say, thanks a lot. You blazed this trail for us. And yes, we're grateful, but you, you know, but doing it all is means having it all means doing it all. This is exhausting, right? With working daughters, I think we're, we're, we're even a decade or so behind that schedule because people are living longer than they used to. So I didn't grow up observing caregiving in my family. And it's not because I didn't have uh, parents who were really good adult children to their parents, but all four of my uh, grandparents died pretty quickly from cardiac events. Well, now with modern science, you know, you're less likely to, you might have, you know, might develop the same condition, but you're less likely to die from that. So, you know, my grandfather lived to 80, but my father lived to 90 with chronic illness. My grandfather died pretty quickly. So, we're early days in women who are in the workplace, place who are raising children, also taking on elder care. And so um, this 86 year old client of yours probably isn't thinking about women with careers. You know, she's thinking about how, you know, what it was like when she was at home and parents didn't live that long and women did take on all those responsibilities. So I think still new at this and that the working daughters of today, I believe are trailblazing. Um, and that's why it feels so difficult. <laughs> that and a million other reasons, right? You are so right. I mean, this makes so much sense because she shared with me that she raised her four children all mm -hmm. by herself. Yeah, I, she, she said, I didn't have a house cleaner. I didn't have a nanny and I was stay home mom and forever and ever. And she, I don't think she ever worked. I can't quite recall, but you're so right. Yeah. Yep, it's the age. And when, again, going back to my husband and I over lunch, we were saying back in the days, there was the little village where everybody lived in the little village until for centuries and, and generations. Mm -hmm. And nobody actually moved really far. Now, and no, and none of the women worked other than in their domestic chores and family and caregiving chores. Mm -hmm. But now we women have taken on the opportunities to work and create our own career like you did and uh, your big career in marketing. And, and suddenly we are now expected to drop all of that because of our parents. Right. We figured out ways, and I'm not saying it's easy for working mothers. I mean, I wrote a whole book about that too, but we figured out ways to work when our children are young. We're just starting to figure out ways to work when our parents are older. And it's it's the longevity, right? That the people are living longer. Um, but it's also, you know, the the rapidly aging society we're in. So 10,000 people are turning 65 every day. So this is hitting us all at once. Um, it's divorce, right? Divorce rates among people over 50 are the highest. So many people are going to care for uh, parents and step-parents, in-laws. They're in, you know, their in-laws might have steps if they step-in-laws. I don't know what you call it. And you mentioned uh, dispersed families. No, we're not all next door to each other in the village. We're across the country. So there are a number of factors that are kind of creating this, this intensity. So we have us as working mothers. Mm -hmm. There's us with elder parents. Where, when this, no, let me rephrase that. Should we prepare ahead for this to happen? Absolutely. And how? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should. And for a number of reasons, we don't. And you touched on this um, earlier in the segment as well, which was, we don't want to talk about this, you know, when it comes and, and, and at that, and I think you're touching on a really big difference between parenting and taking care of parents and people tend to um, equate the two or, or, or um, conflate the two, I should say, and people often refer to, well, it becomes parenting your parents, which I don't subscribe to that attitude for a couple of reasons. Well, let me just touch on that for a second. Assuming your parent has no cognitive decline, you are not parenting your parent. They are an adult who has all this lived experience and wisdom, and you don't just get to tell them what to do. 
you do get to tell your two-year-old what to do. You know, when my two-year-old didn't like going to daycare anymore and he would, you know, kick and have a tantrum, I still dropped him off. He didn't have any say in it. But my 84-year-old mother, you know, with no cognitive decline, if she didn't want to go to an adult day center, she didn't have to go to an adult day center. I had to then adjust what that meant to me and my guilt and, you know, and, and she made choices and you have to adjust your choices around that. So that's one of it. But I think the difference between elder care and child care, so certainly this isn't the case for everybody, but especially among professional women, we often plan when we're going to have a family. You know, I know there are surprises and not everybody plans, but many of us plan. And we really think about what will starting a family mean to my career, my body, my bank account, uh, you know, my social relationships, all of those things, my house. You know, so we we prepare a nursery. We literally and figuratively make space for children in our lives. We don't do that at all for elder care, right? All it's just either it's it's either the the responsibilities start to creep up on us. I call it the caregiver creep, or we get the crisis phone call. Um, so knowing that we have ten thousand people turning sixty five every day, that people are living longer, that there's a shortage of paid caregivers, that more and more people are going to be called on to be family care caregivers, absolutely, it's time to start talking about it and preparing. And I think if you can get organized around a few key areas, you're going to be way ahead of the game. Finances, you know, which is often very difficult. So everything I'm painting isn't everything I'm laying out here doesn't mean if you don't do all of these things, you're in dire straits because people have figured it out without doing any of this. But if you can get a sense of your parents' finances, if you can become a co-signer on their bank accounts, if you can have access to um, power of attorney so you can sign for them in the event that they can't be signed for you, you're going to be way ahead of the game in understanding what they can afford, what you might need be, to be able to afford, and access to their uh, information if you need it. So that's one. Um, the other is housing, understanding and having conversations with our parents about what they want their living situation to look like as they age. Obviously a very emotional and difficult conversation, but I often say if we can phrase it with our parents as what are your goals for this next phase of your life and, and give them you know their autonomy and let them talk about um, how they're thinking about aging, Versus, you know, what so many of us do, and I was guilty of it, like, you know, you can't live here forever, right? I mean, we we, we come into this with so much emotion and stress <laughs> that we often uh, kind of form these conversations as limiting, you know, and, and our parents are already aging, they're already thinking about the many losses along the way of, you know, mobility and independence. So the more we can frame it as what do you want? you know, what, what do you want to keep doing versus what you can no longer do, then I think, you know, the more likely we are to have a good conversation. So do they want to get down with the ship, right? Do they want to age in place and never move out of that home no matter what? Okay, then we can have a conversation about uh, retrofitting the bathroom with grab bars and pulling up the area rigs, uh, rugs and, you know, eliminating trips and falls, bringing in help because eventually they may not be able to take over the home. And a little side note, if our parents say, I'm living in this house forever, that's their choice. That doesn't mean our immediate choice is, oh, then I have to start doing everything. No, then you can have a conversation. Okay, here's what I might be able and willing to do, but it's not our responsibility to maintain a 200-year-old, you know, three-story home for our parents because that's what they want. If that's what they choose, you can talk about, okay, what do those choices mean? So housing and understanding the different options for housing. Many people come into elder care and they don't realize that assisted living is private pay and they think you know well the government pays for that but no you're talking ten thousand dollars a month depending on level of need and where you live in the country so understanding you know that so much of this is private pay and thinking through that um and then medical you know making sure that you or somebody they trust is the healthcare proxy and that you understand what kind of interventions they might need and there are forms you can go through with their primary care physician that walk people through, you know, their thought process. If at some point I need artificial nutrition, is that something I'll want? If I need oxygen, is that something, you know, all of these different things. And the, to the best of our ability, understanding what end of life and what illness and what aging looks like for them or what they want it to look like, 
then we're in such a better place to help them and make those tough decisions if we have to. You unpacked a lot of stuff in there. (laughs) (laughs) And I would just like every now and again in my mind, I would like raise my hand. I did say that to my mom. I like, you need to move out of here. You know, you have bad (laughs) knees. And she's like, no, I'm not moving. And, and, but, but you also gave a very liberating view, which I hadn't thought about that because the example with maintaining the house, okay, uh, uh, getting the bathroom outfitted. I hadn't thought about that. Like for instance, with my mom who does not want to move out of her apartment, which is way too big for her and way too many stairs and no elevator, but she decided she wants to live there. So I feel guilty. And now when you said that, I was like, I don't have to feel guilty. It's her choice. Yes. And we can do things to make it so that she can age right. in that apartment for as long as she likes. And I think that's a really good thing to hear for the listeners, that it's not our responsibility to maintain and to have the status quo as if you were the um, estate agent of the place. Right. right. That's easier said than done. And that goes back to, I would say, those societal pressures. You know, people are going to tell you what a good daughter should do. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from many people on the podcast, but, you know, there are many of us who uh, think should should be spelled S-H-U-D because it's a four-letter word, right? And one that we shouldn't use um, because these shoulds kind of weigh in our head and they're really other people's value systems, right? Weighing on what we should do. Um, you know, neighbors would call me and tell me what I should be doing for my parents. Aunts and uncles would call me and tell me what I should be doing for my parents. And I really think it's important for working daughters to get really clear on what kind of daughter they want to be and then stick to that and not worry about what other people think. And I say this because um, if you're in the working daughter community, you'll notice that working daughter, I mean, certainly some of our members do, but working daughter, we never use the term loved one because we want to be conscious that, and I'm kind of varying on to another topic, but not everyone is caring for someone they love. Some of us are caring for parents that maybe didn't do a good job caring for us. You know, I mean, there's so much family trauma. Um, And so I think these pressures of this, you know, this ideal of what that perfect working daughter does and acts like and feels and thinks is just one more layer that we don't need. And so getting clear about who you want to be and how you want to be as a daughter, I think is really a really important step. And so then if mom stays in the apartment with the stairs, that's too big, you know, you may choose to drop everything and move in with her. I don't know. There's no right or wrong. There's no one way to care. Or you might say, mom, my best advice is, you know, that you downsize or you move to a one story, you stop using the first floor. And here's what I'm willing to do to support your decisions. But I'm also going to go, you know, I also can't be here Monday through Friday, or I'm, you know, whatever those choices are, and then then put your blinders on to what everyone else says you should do and know that you've got a clear head and a clear heart. That is very good advice because it's like you mentioned tapped on it a little bit, the guilt that we have that we're not the perfect daughter and the shoulds are really, ter- I hate the word should. Uh, we All we should be doing is be happy. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you think about that, this is a very good advice because I don't think many women think that way that they say, okay, what do I need in right. order to help? And I love that you said not the loved one, but the parent, mm-hmm. my mom or dad, because it's very true. You don't love everybody that you're um, related to. And neither do you have to. Right. And that you make it, and that brings us in a little while into the segment about the career proofing your elder Mm -hmm. care is that there is a way to do it better, not perfect, but better. So you are not feeling uh, sucker punched in the face, which you probably, anyways, if there's an emergency, and you can lay out those steps like you said you know the legals the doctor forms and we did uh, a couple of years ago we did our will which includes a lot of when I die or when I'm on respiratory or will I be resuscitated all these things are in there as well but is you also touched on something that I didn't think of is uh, permission to um, talk to the doctor, to yeah. have care, to have access to the finances. And I know you hear all these horror stories about 
I signed over this financial thing to my my daughter, my son, whoever in my family. And now I have no money. They took all my money. Right. I think these are just far and few in between stories, I would yeah. hope. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. But this is a good things to keep in mind. And when you, and you guys listening, uh, don't don't stop the car. Whatever you're doing, come back later. Take some notes. Liz will put her contact information in the show notes so you can get more detailed information of what she would recommend as a working daughter, what you can do to, to start the process and continue the process th- through um, with elder care for your parents. Which brings me to how do you career proof your mm. life yeah. with elder care, with caregiving? Yeah, it's challenging because elder in another way that elder care and child care are so different is assuming a healthy child and a normally developing child. And of course, you know, um, not talking about children with special needs because you know, that's a different caregiving challenge, but assuming a healthy child. there's predictability and the level of hands-on work actually decreases over time. So you know that at a certain age, you might send your child to a daycare if you choose to, but you definitely know that at a certain age, your child is going to, you know, K through 12 and you know what the hours are, right? It might start out a part day and then it goes to, you know, eight to two or whatever. You know when um, your wellness checks are supposed to happen at three months, six months, one year, you know, when to get shots, all that good stuff. You know when vacations are and when you might need to take time off of work because there's school vacations and you don't have coverage. So there's a predictability in childcare that does not exist at all in elder care. You never know when someone might have an emergency or need you. So career proofing, I think really comes down to keeping your house in order at work to the best of your ability. Starting to adopt, you know, if you have parents, they're not going to get any younger. (laughs) That just doesn't happen. So starting to think about, do I have a team of colleagues who have my back? Am I working in teams? Do I save important materials on my hard drive? Well, stop it and start to put them on the Google Drive or the server at work um, so that other people can access. So basically conducting yourself in a way that other people can pick up your slack if you ever get that emergency call and need to run out. So like I said, no important documents saved where no one else can access them. Um, CCing people on important emails to clients, thinking about, you know, do people understand where my projects stand, what needs to happen so that they can step in. A kind of help me help you because we're all going to go through this at some point in the workplace. Um, And so I think the more we can sort of be in it together at work and understand there might come a time when you run out the door and I'm going to pick up the slack for you. You might never reciprocate that to me, but maybe you pay it all, you know, forward to somebody else. Or I mean, we all have lives. And I think COVID showed us that every single one of us has a personal life and those personal lives encroach on our working time, whether it's elderly parents or children or neighbors we support or puppies we adopted during the pandemic. I don't mean to equate our parents with puppies, but you know we all have stuff that interrupts our day. And so how do we conduct ourselves in a way that our teammates can support us? I think that's the most important thing we can do. From your experience, what has your experience been with companies? Are they less likely to hire somebody that has elderly parents? Like sometimes they're we know that the prejudice is there. Oh, you're pregnant. We're not going to hire you because right. you're pregnant or right. you're in that age group. Do you experience the same at, at our age with aging parents? I honestly don't think companies are thinking about it, which may be a blessing and a curse, mostly a curse. You know, maybe the blessing is they're not thinking. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly the pregnancy discrimination and I've been involved in those conversations and wanted to throttle, right. My coworkers on the hiring team when they say, well, you know, they're probably going to go have a baby someday. That's illegal. And that's probably what a lousy 12 week maternity leave, you know, work around it. Um, They're not having those conversations like, Hmm, I wonder if she has elderly parents. Um, So partially it's a blessing that they're not thinking about it. The curse I think is that companies are still too slow to recognize how important it is to support family caregivers of all types in the workplace. I think we're still too focused, and I don't mean to minimize the need to support working parents, but I think we're too focused on supporting only working parents as as opposed to workers with parents. So we don't see it in the policies, 
in the conversations at work, in you know the benefits at work. So that's that's a bit that's a bigger problem, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's a good thing to touch on because um, we need to look for what we need as we go older. And as you said, you know, ten thousand people age every year to the age where we are in retirement, where we are getting older and and need that care. And as our workforce gets older, we need more of those services Mm -hmm. in addition to what we already have or or the lack thereof here in the United States. I'm from Germany, so I have a very different view on this whole healthcare thing. But, (laughs) But I think that it is a good thing to talk about it and bring up the conversation. If nobody thinks about it, then what would somebody say? Your boss would say, hey, Liz, while you're out for this whole rest of the week, you know, we have this project due. Yeah. And you're like, well, you know, my dad and my mom. And they're like, well, you know, can't somebody else take care of them? Right, right, right. We, and we, we put people in this, you know, impossible choice that they have to make. Yeah. And there, there has been um, research, of course, I can't find it again, but I remember find, I remember uncovering it while I was writing my book that um, actually, I think I uncovered it um, working on my first book and I was, I wasn't able to relocate it for my second book, but that elder caregivers feel more stigmatized in the workplace than parents. And it partially could be the invisibility of it, you know? True, yeah. true, true. Because in our Western society, being old means you're decrepit. You're, you need to go to a home. You're not functioning. You're not right. thinking. All these, you're breaking down. You're slow. And this is one of my other clients. Because I have a, I have a handful of clients who are in their eighties. Says that she and her daughter just went through her finances because we spoke about finances a minute ago, and she said she just went through the papers and did this and that. And she said, "Mommy, you have to call this person and that person, and that person." And she says, "I couldn't keep up with it. It was so fast, and I don't understand all of this." And and I said, "Did you write it down?" She says, "No." And I'm like, "Why didn't you write it down?" She's like, "You know, I don't want her to think I'm slow. I don't want her to think I don't understand what she's saying." And I said, "The next time you do this." You say, hey, listen, go a little slower. I need a little extra time to digest what you're telling me. And let's write down the steps that I need to take to get this done the way it should done. So the finances are all in order. And and I think that's something we forget, too, is that they just get slower. The nature of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when... Oh, I'm getting slower. I'm 61. And I'm thinking, well, I'm getting all these things done. And then I'm thinking, God, I got nothing done today. (laughs) You said there are four words no caregiver should ever say. See if I can remember them. Should is definitely one of them. Yep. We got that one. Um, Always. And that's because I think we can, um, you know, I think when we're in overwhelmed situations, when we're in tough situations, we can tend to think, you know, I'm always the one who has to do this. There's always a crisis and that leads to overwhelm. And the reality probably is that there isn't always a crisis every hour of every single day, highly doubt it, right? Are you always the one who has to do these things? Sometimes we're choosing to be the one to do these things. So I just think that word doesn't help us. And for me, caregiving is so much a mental energy game there's so much we can't control when it comes to aging, disease, dying. Those things are not in our control. We can only control what we can control, which is our own thinking. So I think that word always, when we start to go, I'm always the one, always this way, every day is bad. And so never is the, you know, the flip side to that, you know, ne- they never help me. I never get a break, probably not reality. Um, and, and so that kind of thinking just doesn't help. And I can't remember what the fourth one is. Okay, three is pretty good, I oh, think. Okay. You hit no, the, the those out. You're at a good start. Always yeah. the never. I don't know. Maybe if you think about it, we'll find out the fourth word. But three, I think, is pretty good. <laughs> These are definitely coming up and they're like ringing a bell. I always am. I never have. I Why, why me? Why me? Why me? Yeah. Why me? <laughs> Could be another one. Yeah. Now, you also said... Um, uh, caregiving can be a gift, but oftentimes it feels like a burden. Why can it be a gift? There's actually research um, that excites me uh, that comes out of 
Johns Hopkins University and the University of South Florida, these two professors who have been studying the impact of caregiving for years. And uh, some of the research they've done, uh, well, so a lot of the research around the impact of caregiving on individuals is that it uh, leads to you know, stress and health problems. And that is all true. That data is all real. And these two professors have also found something they call the caregiver's gain that caregivers compared to non-caregivers, this is when caregiving ends, actually have better cognitive skills, physical strength, sense of self-esteem, um, and just an overall, you know, uh, oh, and better longevity, better longevity. So stronger mentally, physically, better sense of self-esteem, and better longevity. And their research doesn't get a lot of play. And, and partially it's because it bucks all the other research that's out there. And so, you know, it's, it's hard for them to get a lot of uh, momentum for this research when it negates all the other research that's out there. Um, but I am so, I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to them and going through the research. And I think I can attest to certainly the sense of worth and self-esteem that comes from showing up for people um, when they're at their most vulnerable state. Uh, you know, I think so many of us as human beings, what we actually long for is just through connection. And there is nothing that I think feels better than showing up in that warrior mode all in to care for somebody when they really need that care. You know, not to do it for what it does for you, but just to give and and advocate and just be so fully present like one is oftentimes, you know, at that end of life is an incredible feeling after the fact, um, you know, guilt-free, left nothing on the table, did what I needed to do. Um, there's an incredible boost that comes from that. And I think if caregivers might know of this before they go into caregiving, then they might have a better experience and a better thought process through caregiving. And I liken it to exercise. You know, there are actually some people um, who really enjoy exercise while they're exercising. And there are many people who, um, <laughs> who exercise because they know they're going to feel good for having done the exercise, even if maybe they don't enjoy, you know, the actual activity in the moment. There's that endorphin feeling that, you know, great feeling that comes with having sweated out, right? So, so many of us, the alarm goes off in the morning and it is the last thing we want to do to get out of bed, but we do it because we know we're going to feel good for having done it. And so I think if more people could understand that about caregiving, that it is hard and it does lead to stress and oftentimes burnout and weight gain and all kinds of things. For me, you know, I was grinding my teeth so much from the stress, I cracked my front tooth off during caregiving. Um, I wasn't even aware of it. But after the fact, you know, this sense of accomplishment, of connection, um, you know, can really be a boost. And it's also, what I think, why people volunteer Absolutely. for charity, for, for the similar feelings. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think also these feelings that when you think about it, the way you laid it out for us is that you can take those traits and those things you learn throughout uh, caregiving also very well into your job as a working daughter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? And there are other skills or, or I would say those are feelings, but there are also skills that we learn um, as caregivers that I think are incredibly valuable in the workplace. And I think it's important for women having gone through caregiving and maybe needing to come back to a work situation. Some women, you know, 60% of caregivers, especially the women report either cutting back hours, changing to a job with less responsibility or quitting altogether. You come back into the workplace, you're tired. Someone might've passed away, you're grieving. You know, in my case, I sustained myself on Twizzlers, Diet Coke, wine and coffee for months, you know, so I packed on the pounds, right? You're not feeling your best, right? And I lost a lot of influence at work because I was, you know, leaving and canceling and I took a job with lesser responsibility. So to come back into the workplace and start to rebuild your confidence, I think it's really important to reflect on what you did um, learn and what you now can bring to the table, negotiation skills, 
I mean, don't tell me that the only doctor's appointment available is at is at noon. I'm going to get that nine o'clock slot. You know, I mean, carriers can negotiate <laughs> for what they need like nobody's business. We're working with lawyers. We're doing financial planning. We're administering medications. So we're, you know, attention to detail and dealing with all these different departments and coordinating, you know, multi-levels of care, um, you know, advocacy and compassion and understanding a huge growing demographic, which is also a huge money opportunity. This is a big market aging. So we bring so much to the workplace, even when we've been out of work for a long time. So I think it's important that we build ourselves up and also that the workplace recognizes the skill set that these people bring. Yeah. I love that you mentioned exercise because I'm coming from uh, caregiving from an exercise and nutrition point of view. And, right. and I know about those situations, weight gain, reducing stress, mm-hmm. having exercise and or not having time to exercise because you're so caught up in caregiving that you just neglect yourself and don't take care. You take care of the person and their needs and do nothing for you and your health. And so that's from, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is a big part to, to put into that somehow. I know it's difficult and you painted a perfect picture of running around, doing all this, battling the doctors and getting appointments mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. getting the prescriptions filled and all this nonsense that could be way easier from a healthcare point of view. Right. <laughs> but we're not talking about that. So fix that today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're in the thick of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what are some of the resources and how do you learn about how to do all this? I mean, you can wing it, but are there steps that one can take to say, okay, start here, go from there. And you touched on it earlier to take care of the financial and all this. But if somebody listens today and says, oh man, yeah, my mom's, she exactly what we're talking about. What should I do now? Yeah. Yeah. We offer at Working Daughter, we offer um, a caregiver 101 program and it's, you know, it's less than $30 and it's um, it gets you those checklists that you need basically to start organizing around those areas that we talked about, the financial, the legal, the medical and the housing um, and comes with some, you know, motivational videos basically just to say, here's how you get started because the number one question we get is, what do I do? Like, where do I start? What do I do first? And of course, the entry point, you know, to caregiving is different for everybody. But again, I think if you can get organized around those four areas, even if you're in the middle of caregiving, and you can regroup around those four areas, it just gives you a sense of, it gives you the baseline, right? You've got the basics covered. And then the rest we address, you know, I think for caregivers really has to be, like I said, that mindset piece, because we're dealing with things we really can't control. Illness, aging, you know, and we're used to controlling things, right? Absolutely. I was thinking of your example before. It's like, okay, three months checkup, uh, we're measuring, we're doing this, we're going da da da. School starts, but with caregiving, there's no predictability right. at all. Right. So if we can get organized in the big bucket areas, and if we can get our own mindset as healthy as possible, you know saying positive things to ourselves, eliminating always never should in some other word that I will, I will share with you for the show notes, Uh, you know, thinking about, um, you know, putting it all in perspective that maybe this isn't the time in our lives where we're going to be a plus, you know, employees at work, but we're in it for the, this is a long game that we're playing. Think, you know, really get promoting positive self-talk for ourselves as we go through this experience, I think is so, so important. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience, Liz? I think we've touched on uh, most of it. I, I would say, you know, one of the things I tell working daughters, and it might sound a little silly, but I think it's, and it's, it's tied into what I was just talking about. I really encourage everybody to look in the mirror at night, you know, maybe when they're brushing their teeth or, you know, right before they go to bed and thanking themselves for what they did get done. Because, as a poet, because we lie in bed at night, you know, and I'm wildly generalizing, but I bet a lot of your listeners can nod, right? We think about everything we didn't get done. And in caregiving, there really is more to do than any one person can do. We, as people live longer, we as a society haven't caught up with how to support them, you know, for 
a century in social, financial, housing, medical. So it's all falling to the daughter and or son to be all of those things. And so there really isn't enough time in the day. And there probably isn't something that you got to that you should have gotten to today. So rather than lie in bed and worry about that, how about you lie in bed or you look yourself in the mirror at night and say, wow, I showed up. I did get this done. I tried. Um, I think that's enough. Yeah, I think that's good advice because we do not give ourselves enough credit for the things we accomplish each day, that we achieve each day, the people yeah. we help each day. Um, and we always have a bucket list of, or not a bucket list, but a, a long list of items that seems to never ending to-do lists and uh, getting done lists. Yeah. So I think this is a very good advice to say, you know, pat yourself on the back. You're doing mm -hmm. a great job. Yeah. Liz, how can my listeners uh, connect with you and reach you? Uh, workingdaughter.com is simple. And from there, you can join our private Facebook community where uh, thousands of working daughters support each other every day or access the Caregiver 101 program that I talked about or, you know, follow us on social, um, find the book. I mean, everything's housed at workingdaughter.com. So. Perfect, because that's easy to, to remember. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show and sharing this very sensitive but very needed topic about our families and our parents. Oh, thank you for paying attention to it, giving attention to it. It's so important. Yes. So listeners, listen closely. You can reach us on social media, like we said. The links will all be in the show notes. Please have a conversation with us. We are not just recording this session because we love you so much. We do, but we want to hear from you. Liz is laughing. We want to hear from you. It's true because we don't know what you're thinking. And if you're lurking on social and don't talk to us and you have a question, post the question. We are answering the question. And if we don't know, I ask Liz and Liz will answer it for you or she will answer it directly for you, depending on where you are on social media. So please talk to us because this is not just a one-way podcast show. This is a two-way road and women need to support more women. So with that, my friends, we're out of here and we see you next time on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Ciao.